in the case that there is. Like those are kind of the two things that you're betting on. There's a simple there's a simple solution. I don't understand why they didn't do. Just write the checks for the people taking out the money. Post dated six years. You got jokes, huh? <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Genuinely, Dougals. Genuinely, how are you doing this week? I'm really concerned about you. Uh, I, you know, I'm good. In the face of tumultuous circumstances, only the strongest persevere. <laughs> You're just saying words. They don't oh, yeah, mean anything. Exactly. Right exactly. We don't mean like... anything. Let's just get into it. Let's just get into it. Please rate and review the podcast. We love it. We love it. We love it. Rate, review. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you all. And remember, if you ever want to ask a question, make a comment, et cetera, skippydougals at gmail.com. We know you're all craving that Silicon Valley bank breakdown. It's coming to the end of the show. And it, it might be an F epic rant for me doogles i got some strong Ooh. feelings about this there is oh my goodness is there some quality journalism on this there's a guy at netinterest.co that did a killer breakdown the wall street journal's just been crushing it and breaking news we're recording this saturday morning it looks like circle usd the crypto stablecoin, has uh some exposure to the silicon valley bank stuff and they're currently trading at 87 cents on the dollar. When this drops on Monday, who knows if they will still exist or not. Crazy times. Whew. Oh, man. This was this week was full of stuff. Just full of it with, obviously, what we're going to talk about there with Silicon Valley Bank being like the, the pinnacle. But to tell you how much this week was full of it, I'm going to start with something that has nothing to do with anything that we usually talk about. Fortune Magazine. You familiar? Oh, yeah. Fortune had an article this week about body doubling. And of like pigs. What are we what are we talking about? We've we've gone as a society. We've gone too far. So, you know, Twitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like not Ellen's DJ, but the other Twitch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. R.I.P. The other Twitch, which is a service where people can go on and watch other people play video games. I, I've heard a bunch of folks be like, why would you want to watch people play video games? But it's very popular. Very, very popular. Body doubling takes that to a whole new alarm. That's level, in case you weren't, you weren't clear. A whole <laughs> nice. new alarm. Body doubling is where people go on TikTok and they make themselves live on TikTok and show themselves working. As an example... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do I get to see their screen? Like, is this a confidentiality concern? It doesn't seem like it's a confidentiality concern, but I I don't know. I don't know what all the situations are. I just read this one article, but an example, one of the examples they provide in this article is about someone who's a data analyst. So when I first saw you could see someone work, I was like, oh, maybe like I was thinking through a lot of different professions, yeah, at yeah. which that could be real interesting. And data analyst wasn't one of them, but Apparently, I mean, this person gets thousands of people that log on and watch them work for about four to five hours a day. And what's the advantage to me? <laughs> so, I, like, I'm the I'm the guy doing work over here. I have to go buy a separate camera 
and like set it up so they can see me and then do i get paid or something i mean you make money it's just like influencers like you become an influencer right like that's that's the whole thing this is another this is another way that people become influencers but they can't even see like how i'm using an index match instead of a v lookup to blow excel's mind i mean there's nothing i don't no, get what, it what i'm telling you okay I, I didn't say i got it first of all <laughs> what i was what i'm telling you is this whole thing has gone to a whole new alarm the things that we will watch other human beings do is beyond but i i do believe that it is just like an influencer thing where you become an influencer and this is another way in which you can engage fans right during the day and so that's what's happening here. They got a picture on this article of the person drinking a Heineken while they're doing this too. Now, I, I can't quite, it's not high enough fidelity, the image, at least the uh, where the Heineken is for me to know if this is like one of those non-alcoholic Heinekens or what, but does it matter in the end? Yeah, I don't I don't think it matters because <laughs> so. um, that guy's an influencer, Diggles. He can do whatever he wants. He's not reporting to his company anymore. He's reporting to his viewers. Yeah. Anyway, I just I wanted to hit on that quickly. There's not a lot to say there. But I, when I read it, I just went again. We are we're grasping, it seems like, for ways to entertain ourselves and entertain other people. And this I'm not going to call it a low. Right. Because I don't want to make judgment on it. But it's like it's out there. It's out there. Yeah. All right. Well, fascinating, I guess. There's more breaking news on the podcast. Mark Zuckerberg should have listened to Bill Gurley. Do you know why? Go for it. Meta is going to lay off roughly 13% more of their workforce over the next couple of months. Isn't that crazy? So one, Zuckerberg has seen the light. Remember just like nine months ago when he's going to spend $30 billion on the metaverse and he is basically hiring employees hand over fist and burning money. And now he's calling 2023 the year of efficiency. I'm happy about this as a shareholder, but wow a lot of people it's yeah. a lot of people and the and it's it's com, it's like compounding and compounding they're not the only company right that is having multiple layers of of no, compounding layoffs the, right yeah and this is where i i don't know i know the world the plan with numbers out if they laid off 25 percent of their workforce whenever they did their their first round but like that's from effectively get. where they're headed and you know what that does to employee morale? Like, you ever been in one of those companies where you have a layoff every, like, three to six months? It's not a good nope. place to work. No. Oof. All right. So let's dive into investing with a stat I found this week, and I really, really enjoy this sort of stuff. Uh, this is my call to action for Dougals and the long-term trend uh, style. So there's some back testing goes all the way back to 1926, talks about reinvested dividends accounting for 38% of total returns. Mm -hmm. And here's the kicker, Dougals. It's higher than that during high inflationary periods. Like in the 70s, for example, dividend reinvestment uh, represented 72% of stock performance. That's I haven't looked at this stat in a while, man. I mean, like you see these, but right now, if you're not, if you're, I don't want to speak too broadly here. Let's say it this way. I'm very happy that I own a lot of dividend stocks that I'm reinvesting consistently through this turmoil, because I know that's going to be a good thing long-term. 
Yeah, but the yes. So do 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 your thing. And <laughs> the inflationary part of that, I, I didn't think that that was particularly relevant. I, I think it was mostly reinvesting dividends during market downturns, which also <laughs> overlaps with inflation. Like it's not during inflationary periods. Uh, that's dividends. a better way to say it. Yeah, right? actually, that's a better way. It's yeah. and it's like that's almost they simplified something that's way more complex than that. It's like during inflationary periods, you're more likely to have a market downturn. In a market downturn, your reinvested dividends are more likely to be a larger portion of your total return, in a positive sense. So yeah, that's a I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge testament to the power of compounding. In the utmost of well, maybe if you combine compounding with being able to dollar cost average without your own money, although dividends in a way are part of your own money, but it's but it's not quite you know yeah that clean. Doesn't I think feel it's like, like it. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. My in this uh in this Twitter thread as well, Michael Mobison had a reply. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, and Michael Mobison, the investor, Michael Mobison. We also talked about him last week. And Michael Mobison said, yes, and reminder to everyone that capital accumulation only occurs with price increases. So he he just he wanted to be clear that it's not the dividends are not the way that the uh, that that the investors end up making money by themselves. And he says that because if to use a simple example, if you have a company that's trading at $100 per share and it pays a $5 per share dividend, the share price is down $95. And so therefore, therefore, like the price goes down. But if you reinvest that, then you have more capital that can then, if the price increases, that can then start to accumulate wealth. And so it's a, I just thought that was like an interesting ad by him. I don't know if I just overly complicated your situation. No, it makes sense. But also, like I thought you were going with a simpler yet related point. If the stock starts at a hundred bucks a share and goes to zero and you reinvested all those dividends over the course of 10 years you <laughs> wasted <laughs> all that money right you, the rebound yes. has to come because yes, what yes, you're yes. saying is the the price drops you buy with dividend reinvestment or with dollar cost averaging that's a very good point this is why dollar cost averaging through market downturns is important and then it actually rebounds and that five dollars that you bought when it was down in the 70s is worth seven bucks because it's down it's up in the 120s now right like that has to happen so this is not just a blank mindless check of like i'm gonna you still have to be yeah. smart yeah. about your approach. yeah i love the point love the point nonetheless i'm gonna i'm gonna dip in for for another quick hit on bill ackman bill ackman has an investment firm pershing square very famous investor and back in the first 18 months of COVID days have what I'm coining the Ackman COVID trio. It will not stick. That name will not stick. But the Ackman COVID trio, there, there's an article in Vanity Fair that pulled an excerpt from a book uh, that's coming out that touches on how, it seems like, touches on how a number of companies and organizations um, ended up either surviving or thriving during COVID, it seems like. But this piece, I'm just going to hit on the, the trio that Bill Ackman had. And Bill Ackman makes big moves. That's kind of how big Bill Ackman, and some of them work out well. Most of them work out well enough, still is, is doing well. And he also has some misses, right? It's what happens when you make big moves. But here are three. So one is in early March of 2020. And if, if folks recall, 
February 19th of 2020 was the peak of the market. And then March like 16th was the trough of the market. Like, And there was a 30 to 35% drop, something like that in between. So it was a really fast decline. Early March, Bill Ackman went to his organization and said, look, fellas and ladies, here's what we got to do. Either we are selling everything because I think this thing's about to crash hard or we need a big hedge. And they went through their portfolio and said, what can we sell? What can we sell? They were debating some stuff and said, okay, we're not going to sell this stuff. We're not going to do it for a variety of reasons. So it's big hedge time. And so they ended up using credit default swaps. We'll skip uh, We'll skip on what that is, but it's the same thing that folks use to bet against the housing market, um, including Bill Ackman uh, back in the late 2000s. And said, so we're going to, we're making a big, I think it was a $27 million uh, bet on credit default swaps. Did that. Ended up getting a hundred thousand fold increase on that bet, which is a wild increase in about three weeks, I think, or something like that. It was like a, it was wild. This is a, it's, it's wild. Uh, and so that bet ended up being worth like a couple billion dollars. That was one. The second, and interrupt me at any time if you want to comment on these. But the second is in uh, late March. So this is the other side of that three weeks. Blackman goes, whoo, stuff must have fallen a little too hard. And so then they made a big bet on the stock market. And we all know the stock market came back from. You know, you know, when it's easy to make a big bet on the stock market when you, well, you just say you got a thousand time return. Like a hundred thousand. I think it was a hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that makes life a lot easier, right? Yes, You're like, really oh, that, what am I going to do with this extra yeah. billion bucks? I, I think I could deploy that capital, right? When you're playing with the house money? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was the second. And then the third was, he said, interest rates have got to rise. And so this is, you fast forward like a year-ish, something like that. And Blackman said, we're at a point where we're talking just like Skippy was back in the day. We keep saying transitory, transitory, transitory. You have so much pent up demand. People are buying flights like this. It's about to hit big time. We have to raise interest rates, Fed, called the Fed out, et cetera, et cetera. And so they made a bet that treasuries would end up spiking. That was the third. And so it was like a nice little trio. It's amazing. It The interest rate stuff is so frustrating to me. And I don't want to be a guy like this, but we it's documented on the pod where you and I said, Interest rates are at historic lows. There's nowhere to go but ups. Owning long-term duration bonds is idiotic at this point in the game. There's literally no upside. Uh, sorry, there's very little upside. You'd have to be <laughs> yes. betting on rates going negative, which doesn't make sense and is not good for anybody in the economy. And this, Dougal's like, this is Silicon Valley Bank. It's part of the story there, too. They were buying long-term duration bonds yielding like one to one and a half percent. Who thought that was a good idea to buy something that's six years, or 10 years out yielding one and a half percent? We're not there yet. Oh, we're not man. there yet. Slow your roll. Oh, Slow your roll. Bill Aikman Slow is all roll. I got to say. All right. So here's where we are, Diggles. If I reach into my fishbowl, I think we're at housing. You ready to do this deep dive on housing? No, I'm not yet. Can I do one more <laughs> quick hit before we start? The, just this will be yeah, real quick. Okay. This will be yep. real quick. Uh, we promised not to talk about her for like about a month. I think it's been about a month and a half. So we're cool. Kathy Wood. We, Kathy we, meet the, we met the quota. Yeah, but we met this the quota. is worthy of talking about. This is worthy of talking about. So Kathy Wood's fund launched in 2014, been about nine years. During that time period, investors in Kathy Wood's fund have lost almost $10 billion. Nine and a half billion is what I'm seeing. 
How much have they collected in fees? Isn't that three hundred million? Three hundred and ten million dollars. Okay, now we can go into to housing. Well, I want to let the listeners behind the curtain here. Text message from Dougal's. If you lost your investors ten billion dollars, should you collect three hundred million in fees? Skippy, no. That's how I feel about this. There's <laughs> yeah, it's very straightforward. It's ju- it's not right. Like it's not okay, and. I'm not naive enough to think that any of the money is going back to those individuals, but it's there. There's part of the investment manager game. That's all about um, AUM and it's sad. Like it, how does she honestly think in this, maybe she doesn't, but does she think she earned that $300 million? I'm sure they just think of it as like, well, we have to pay for our research to do this. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's the, she probably thinks about this in a couple different ways. I was trying to leave it at that just to be clear. Remember, but she probably thinks about this as one. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of research and this is a multi-decade bet on genius innovation. And so how are you just going to measure me on the first nine years? Now at the end of 2020, she was like, yeah, you measure me at the end of this one year or at the end of my first like five years, she was like, yeah, you measure me on this. Now she's saying, no, it's, you know, 10, 20 years out. We'll see. Only time will tell if she weathers this and her stuff hits, you know, more power to her. But right now it doesn't look good. You're right. We should leave it at that. But if I ever collect 300 million in fees on a 10 billion loss, will you come slap me or something? Throw me out of a, just like a two-story window. I don't want to die. I just want to feel a little pain. Well before 10 billion. The slack okay. shall come. Perfect. Good. Yeah. All right. How's it? All right. You sent me this fascinating article. I'm pulling it up right now because uh, I want to get the title right and give credit where it's due. Uh, on, it's called Good Reason at Substack, right? So Andre Cooper. Andre breaks down a current purchase decision. The place he uses is actually Littleton, Colorado. And and basically comes up with this, what I think is a hypothetical example, right? Dougal's of a person buying right now and how it could play out uh, the buy versus rent decision based on where future home prices go. Yep, yep, yep. Fascinating piece. Like really fun. If If you're a housing market nerd, I'd recommend reading this. It will definitely be on our Substack. Yeah. Hi, um, hi, highly logical. And the title of this was maybe treating housing as an investment was a colossal society shattering mistake. That's the title of the piece. Thank you. We talk about housing a bunch on the show. And what we've talked about in the past couple of weeks is the affordability index, basically saying housing is as expensive as it has been maybe ever in the U S but certainly in the last 40 to 50 years. Yep. And where I go, I'm going to take a leap of faith from the article. So, Dougals, if you want to go back and, and walk through the article, we can do that. But here's a hypothesis I've had for about a month that I've run by some of like my smart real estate investor friends. And I think I'm sold on it. I'm not sure that anyone else is sold on it right now. I think buying a house currently is almost like trading fixed income bonds, but people don't know that. And the reason I think that is because you are so dependent on where interest rates go that you you're effectively stuck in riding the coattails of Jay Powell and team more than 
what's actually happening with housing and the supply and demand for housing. The reason I state that is because if we just take for a fact that housing is affordability is at all time lows, that means that the prices of homes are not increasing until how housing becomes more affordable. The only way in the near term, and I'm even talking like a five year, maybe a 10 year near term here, that housing becomes significantly more affordable is if interest rates drop. If interest rates continue to climb and you're already at the peak of housing affordability, it doesn't matter if there's more people that would like to buy your home. Those people won't be able to buy your home at a price that's greater than the price you paid. It's just not physically possible. Because we know that wages are not going to take a 20% jump year over year. Like that's never happened and it's not going to happen. I guess the one case where that may happen is if inflation truly gets out of control and we become Venezuela. But let's let's put that on the table for the moment. Where I'm going with that hypothesis is I think it's really important to understand if you're buying rental property right now, or even if you're purchasing a family home, you are more susceptible to interest rate risk than I think you maybe ever have been, certainly ever have been in the past 20 years. And that really changes things. This article breaks down the fact that if someone buys a home right now, they would likely be better off renting if the value of that home doesn't appreciate. And where I, what I'm saying is I don't see the value of that home appreciating without significant help from interest rate reductions that I don't see on the table right now, but I'm not going to forecast interest rates. That's impossible to do. I would, I'd push back only on one part. I think you're right yeah. overall, but the, and I, I know you didn't mean this as straightforward as you were saying it, but the, the impossibility of this is what I push back on because it, it would take, what I would say is what you said was true, unless there were some systemic changes like around policy and uh, like government subsidization, right? Like there, there are ways to make it such that um, what you point. stated would be different. But with the systems that we have today, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and the example they provided in the article, which I agree, I think it was hypothetical uh, example here was someone named Alice. And when Alice ran the calculations, it came out such that the house would have to double in price roughly over the next 18 years in order for uh, for it to make sense. And you're right that that is, it's hard to imagine. Like it's really difficult to imagine that with the current systems that we have. Um, those could shift, but otherwise I fully agree. You know, I love your pushback there because what happens with housing, it, housing is like less rational than the stock market because politicians love to get involved with the thought of, well, this is the American dream. And if it's almost like college tuition in a way, it's like, it doesn't matter. We never say, well, it's nonsensical for college tuition at a state university to cost $25,000 a year. We say that's a fundamental right. So we're going to make non-recourse <laughs> yes. debt that you can go bankrupt for and still have to owe your college loans because we want people to be able to go to college. Well, that could happen in housing. There could be a public yeah. sector solution that allows home prices to continue to rise, even when like the simple math of it all says this is nonsensical yep. and yep. people can't pay 50% of their wage to live that you can't pay the bills yeah. if you do that. And it was in the early episodes of this podcast, I think it even like on episodes two, I think it started, we were discussing 
my decision to buy a house with my wife and the conversations we were having here and Skippy and I were talking through some things to look at, et cetera. And the place for me personally, as an investor, like as someone that thinks about things like this as an investor, the mental place I had to get to in order to buy the house is to not believe that the house was an investment. It was a financial investment. Mm-hmm. Like that's the place I had to get to. Uh, and right or wrong, I'm just like, you know, like that's that's where my mindset was. Now, I, I specify financial investment because of some of the stuff that's named in the article and some of the stuff we talked about, right? There's like an investment in family, an investment in like the city in which you live, like, uh, right? There's like other stuff you can use the word investment for. But so long as I was thinking this is a financial investment, I was like, I would do a lot of other stuff with this cash right yep. now, right? Yep. And so I couldn't uh, I couldn't view it as an investment. But uh, there were there were a couple straight quotes I want to take from this article. Not going to walk top to bottom, top to bottom, but a couple straight quotes that I just thought were kind of magical. Mm-hmm. One is when you invest in a company, you expect the stock price to rise because the company becomes more productive. When you invest in a home, you expect the price to rise because shrugs, it just does. <laughs> I, I, I know there's like there's some there's a hyperbolic nature to it. I just love I love that quote. There's um, um my, my my dad's family is from Ohio, right? And that was 50, 60 years ago when he was growing up. That was like boomtown. The factories are still going. It, it's a great place to be. And we relocated to Colorado. The Colorado real estate market has basically been like the mini California real estate market where you can buy anything. It goes up in value. And the people I talk to in real estate, not all of them, uh, but a lot of them go, yeah, the, the price goes up because it does. And I go, yeah, well, look at all these markets in Ohio where the home is worth 25% of what it used to be worth. And there's literally vacant. I mean, not every market is like that. It's really important to understand that. And that I think a lot of, I shouldn't say that, that's too strong. Some real estate investors basically have no clue what they're doing, in my opinion. (laughs) And they end up in a good market and it's luck disguised as skill. There's a lot of really good ones out there, but some of them just ride the coattails of a hot market and never understand why. And part of the mindset you're talking about is what led to the the boom and bust of the housing market, you know, 15 years ago. It was there was this belief that well, some people just like knew what they were doing and wrote like and from, from the corporate side knew what they were doing and, and pushed yeah. this thing to limits. Yeah. But if you look at from the other side of it, consumer side, et cetera, it was everyone pays their mortgages. And housing always goes up. So like, if you believe those things, then no matter what we do, it's just going to go up to the right. So keep betting, right? That is, it's a mindset when you take it to the extreme and uh, have leverage on top of leverage on top of derivatives that becomes really, really dangerous. One other quote here. Yeah. So this kind of, it's kind of piggybacks off the last one. Moreover, houses are pretty much the only physical good that are expected to one, appreciate in value and two, be used all the time. And they go on to talk, give examples of playing what they declare as baseball hockey inside your house, people like jumping on your furniture, scuffing up the walls. It's like all this stuff that you do to depreciate any other asset Mm -hmm. is expected to increase the value of the home. 
and the whole thing wraps because it's saying it's not really about the house. It's about like the location and scarcity and all this other stuff is what it leads to. It's not the house itself. That's what it kind of goes on to. But I thought that that was a very interesting little quote. Well, I like I like that frame. And I want to be clear. I don't agree with 100% of everything in this article, but I did find it a fascinating and like mm-hmm. very fun read. Yeah. But I think there's a breakdown of like, you buy the new car for 50k you drive it off the lot it's worth 40 and you fully expect that five years later if you're gonna sell the thing it's worth 20 right like that's just how people think about cars and a lot of other assets and then he goes yeah you're playing baseball in this house and you expect it to double in value every 10 years or every 15 years like uh when people think of housing only as an investment, and I'm trying to be careful with my words here. Let's say like your main residence, not a, a rental home. They they go, yeah, like I don't have to. I'm not gonna have to put in new carpet or patch up the walls or do this. It's just gonna become more valuable. Turns out, home ownership is very very expensive. Yes. Well, how did I describe it? Do you remember? <laughs> it's not an investment. Yeah, that and a lifetime of inconvenience. <laughs> that, that, that is my description okay should we give the people what they want i think we should okay we should. all right let's talk silicon valley bank and i'm if it's cool with you i'm gonna cede the flow over to you because you are the to give like the context background you are the banking guru of the podcast happy to do that so uh yes i spent more than a decade in banking um i also on a daily basis help companies deploy capital and manage bank relationships for them. So this is in my wheelhouse. I'm gonna try and make it so it's not too nerdy, Dougals. I wanna talk, almost disconnect from some of the real pain. And we always try and do that on the pod, whether it's layoffs or anything else. Like there are real people impacted. There are companies that can't make payroll because Silicon Valley Bank was managing their funds. There's ramifications in the crypto space like we talked about earlier. So let's, Let's have everyone grab a virtual beer and we're just going to talk about some of the fascinating nature of what happened and yes. give people a refresher on banking runs, which are a part of life and always will be a part of life. Dougals, you know, at last two um, holiday seasons, I've been talking about the remake of It's a Wonderful Life. This might actually be that I might be able to pull something with Silicon Valley Bank to <laughs> update that beautiful, kind uh, movie about having... Uh, great friends to support you. All right. The main thing. Well, okay. And then I'm convinced I'm actually living in the Truman Show. Right as Silicon Valley Bank is happening, someone pops up with a Jim Cramer clip. I swear this seems like it's got to be generated by artificial intelligence because he like checks every box of the things you would not say or you would hope you never said for a bank that's going bust. It was. <laughs> one of his year-end stocks of the biggest winners so or no so the biggest winners so far in 2022 i think this was like 2023 2023 this is in the past three weeks and he gives a little blurb on how great the business model is and how stable it is and how strong the bank is jim kramer man okay here is a lot of what's happened in the silicon valley bank space i want to start with some high level definitions that are valuable here. This is from the net interest article that we'll put on the Substack. Banks get assets, Dougals, and they put them into two when they when they purchase assets, 
um, they put them into two buckets. And these are typically balancing out their liabilities, which are their deposits. So one of the buckets is held to maturity and another is available for sale. The reason they put them in those two buckets is because it's important and this goes almost to fixed income trading. So I want you to send a check to make sure I do a good definition of this, right? So let's say I have $10 million in deposits coming to my bank. And let's say I can only deploy $5 billion of that with lending that I feel is safe and I can make a decent return on. That means I'm sitting on $5 billion worth of cash that I got to do something with. And typically I'm going to go buy something. Could be like treasuries, could be mortgage-backed securities, could be something that is deemed very safe, you would hope, because these are banks, to try and make a return on those funds so I can pay interest to my depositors. Why is it important to pay interest to my depositors? Because if I don't do that, they go elsewhere. And Dugos, I'll tell you one of the ramifications of this failure for the average consumer is you are going to see interest rates go up across the board. Because on this show, for the past six months, we've been highlighting how you can get a 4% interest rate in lots of places that aren't your bank. And so people are pulling out funds. When people pull out funds, the banks have to give them their money back. And sometimes that's incredibly onerous. That's what started for Silicon Valley Bank here. So I'm going to interrupt just to give a couple uh, additional definitions, maybe, of two things you mentioned, available Please. for sale and held to maturity and the importance of those buckets. You're going to go into uh, ramifications, I assume, here. So on the held to maturity, why that's important, and we've talked about this with bonds in the past, if you you buy a bond, the bond has a certain duration, which means the length of time until that bond matures. Let's give a simple example. If yeah. I buy a five-year bond, when I buy it on day one and hold it for five years, it is going to pay me whatever the coupon, that's the interest rate payments, right? It's going to pay me whatever that is on whatever the frequency of the bond is until it matures. And then I get the principal, the amount of the value of the bond back at the end. Between now and that maturity date, though, interest rates can change. And as we've discussed, bond prices are inversely related to interest rate movements. And so if interest rates go up, the price of my bond goes down. And so the bond, while I'm holding it, is going to fluctuate up and down based on interest rates. But if I hold it to maturity, that doesn't matter because I just get back the value of the bond at the end. So that's hold to maturity. Well, and available for sale is the opposite. Available for sale is going to be mark to market. So um, the bond holding that I have, to keep it simple, if... I bought at a 1% rate and rates go to 4%. That the value of that bond, you talk to these things in like in hundreds, is going to go from 100, which would be par, to 95, something less than 100. Because yep. the out in the space, you can go buy the next version of that bond for and get a higher return. So the value of the previous version of the bond at a lower interest rate is worth less as a version apart. We're like yep. fairly deep in the weeds, but it's important. So I'm just flabbergasted and I'm sure there's some reason to it that I can't comprehend, but the average maturity of bond purchases for SVB was 6.2 years. 
So we just talked historically low interest rates coming into 2020, 2021. You're a bank. You're in that situation where I gave you have 10 billion worth of deposits. You have 5 billion that's easily deployable and you can make a nice return. For simplicity's sake, this is not what Silicon Valley Bank did, but for most banks, call those mortgages. Like you have people lining up that want to buy homes. You can deploy five million, five billion of that, and charge them a six percent interest rate or whatever. Like the finances work out because you make a six percent return from those individuals, and you only pass down a percent or two to your depositors. That spread is how the bank makes money. Some of those people that buy your mortgages default on their loans. That's part of the equation. You know that's going to happen. Everything works out. It's the five billion dollars that you can't deploy that you go buy these bonds. I can imagine buying three months bonds, six months bonds, in some cases, even like a year. I cannot imagine buying an average maturity. And these were mortgage-backed securities, it sounds like, of 6.2 years. Because what is bound to happen if you're sitting on rates in the 1% range? They're going to go up. And what happens to those held to maturity assets, Dougals? <laughs> is you get upside down and you get upside down very quickly because you have this six year duration yielding one and a half percent when all of a sudden the going rate is four and a half to five percent for that product. So the value of that loan is significantly or the value of that bond significantly less. Now you planned to hold that for the full six year period, but your depositors start freaking out because of a poorly issued press release and some other things here cutting to the chase and they start pulling that five billion dollars out and you go we don't have all our money's tied up we have money six years from now we don't have money right now then you get into a situation where you have no good choices this is exactly what happened this week and you can either take those held to maturity assets and sell them at a steep loss based on the current market value but if you do that with any one of those bonds, you have to mark to market the entire portfolio. So that might be a 30% yeah. loss. That might be more. And yeah. actually, I have those numbers, but not in front of me at the moment. So as soon as you do that, you create more concern in the market, which leads to more VCs saying, get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank as soon as possible. Classic bank run. You get the cyclical loop and yeah. you don't have a yeah. bank anymore. You're betting on in order to have an average maturity like they they had you're betting on two things to be true i think uh, you have to believe that two things to be are true and you're betting on them like you're betting your company on them one is that there won't be a material and fast decline in your deposits and or that it will be very easy for you to raise capital in the case that there is like those are kind of the two things that you're betting on there's a simple there's a simple solution i don't understand why they didn't do just write the checks for the people taking out the money post dated six years you got jokes huh <laughs> <laughs> there's no simple solutions here but it's unfortunate really unfortunate that it almost ended up as gambling like the, the bank wasn't trying to gamble no. But it almost ended up that way. And they missed the interest rate risk they missed. I read another breakdown that talks about the European Union's Banking Commission yeah. uh, doing more regulatory testing on 
interest rate shocks, basically. Now, some people are trying to call this an interest rate shock. This is where I continue to be so frustrated. It's not, Dougals. Jay Powell came up to the microphone once a month for the past, what, 12 months and said, we are raising interest rates. We are raising interest rates by this much. Here's our target. Like, how you could not see this coming. It was as telegraphed as you could ever get. So the other thing I need to mention, and I'm sorry, because like this is just so fascinating. I'm talking too much. But the other challenge with Silicon Valley Bank is they had an incredibly concentrated pool of depositors, users, company types. It's the bank for startups and venture. It's the place. So Roku had... $497 million in deposits there. Roblox had 5% of 3 billion, their total cash holdings at Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of VCs or uh, managing partners told all, (laughs) like told their whole portfolio of companies, go work with Silicon Valley Bank. And so then it's not like, you know, all banks deal with one company or two companies or, industry going through tough times but typically they have other deposits from other companies other sectors that balance those out silicon valley bank doesn't appear to have that and i'll i'm gonna give the silver lining here in my eyes yeah the silver lining is that who's there it's easy let me back up for a second i think it's easy for folks like outside in at the macro level to start thinking about Lehman, Bear Stearns, and similar type of situations, Washington Mutual, which is the largest right bank failing, where Silicon Valley Bank is the second history of the country from 15 years ago. It's easy. One big difference, which leads to my silver lining here, is that back then, the, the main reason for the failure of those institutions was they were holding a heap of junk. And what was happening was the the market having the realization or just the decision to say this junk is junk and it's worthless. And so you have a whole bunch of your portfolio that's worthless. Here, in accordance to what you're saying, they hold quality, like high quality assets. They just can't have that money for six years. And to your point you're bringing up right now, a, a cousin of the point you're bringing up right now is... When you have all of those assets concentrated in one firm as highly concentrated within that firm, even that it is, like it was something like 80% of their um of the securities were held to maturity or something. It was really large. I got that percentage wrong, but it's like yeah, really yeah. big. That's the problem. But with the FDIC, when they when they go either the FDIC or a big, big bank that buys them, which might happen this weekend. Like this weekend, mm-hmm. a big, big bank, I think I would say. I'm not a predictor, but the large, the most likely scenario is that a big, big bank probably buys them. But if I was a big, big bank, I would. There's probably a deal to be had. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, like I would guess I would Goldman. Strongly. I'd guess Goldman. That'd be my guess. See, you know who should buy them, Dougals? This is completely speculative. It's Wells Fargo. You know why? Because Wells Fargo needs some positive PR. And this would be that. Are you hold on? Just, just, just yeah. to be clear. No, listen. Are they searching for scandals? Are there, is Wells Fargo the Cowboys or the Cleveland Browns? No, Wells like, Fargo what, what, can ride in, ride in in their little horse and carriage. <laughs> Seriously, they should have to have money in a horse and carriage. Drive it down from San Francisco 
to Santa Clara and and throw some money on the line. And no, they could save the day here. It actually we'll get back to the the serious stuff in a second here. But I you're onto something. But uh, you know who should on Wells Fargo behalf ride in the horse and carriage? Who? I forget his name, but it's like something Mac, the dude that was with the wheelbarrow down in uh in Texas. Oh, mattress that, Mac. Mattress Mac. Yeah, I feel like he should ride in on the the Wells Fargo trolley, horse and trolley. Anyway, okay. No, but but in all seriousness, like the assets are high quality, and so this is this. It's not like there um there aren't dollars that exist; they just don't exist now. And so if you actually if you can uh, make these assets as a part of a diversified portfolio elsewhere, or uh, many elsewhere's, like the money's there. I think that that is like a big difference. The money is there, and so um, it's, let's. Push I want to hammer home that point with my opinion it's it's not washington mutual like they're they're they are in a much better position but at the same point holding a six-year term that yields one and a half percent is not ever going to get to par because the interest rates are at five percent so there are losses to be had here i don't think they're massive losses i think the large majority of the people and companies that bank with silicon valley bank are gonna get i don't know 90 percent of their funds back hopefully more that and the reason, hopefully a hundred percent. But what's so interesting about the concentrated portfolio at Silicon Valley Bank is only two point seven percent of their deposits were less than two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which that is the FB, FDIC insurance range. So there's ninety seven percent that is exposed, meaning it's not guaranteed by the government. To your point, there's high quality assets behind those, so. Hopefully this doesn't end up being a big deal. And I think I'm going to call Wells Fargo. They need to ride in and <laughs> save the day here. Yeah. And one last statement, I don't mean for this to be political, but it kind of inherently is, is this is one of those situations where some folks in the government are going to use it as if it is a Washington mutual, et cetera, whatever it might be as a case to say, government, why are you stepping in, et cetera, et cetera. And they they want to use this as a point against like executives being bailed out or making money. But to the point, I just want to write off what you were just saying. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank, its average holdings, like deposits, were about $4 million. I can't remember the exact amount. It's about $4 million. And so what you're talking about, going back to what you mentioned before, if you have average of $4 million, you're talking about a small entity like in the startup world and organizations that are thinking about either the like the payroll that's about to happen or the next payroll that's happening right and if you're that small of a company this is material so we're not talking about the executives here solely like we're we're talking about like i'm going to go back to quality assets cash in a lot of circumstances that small enterprises need in order to pay their folks so back up off that's what i would say yeah there's a startup bank called mercury which i've worked with in the past and they sent an email friday that simply said like we've been overwhelmed by demand and are working all weekend to open new accounts um and yeah. i was like of course you have it but it was it was a funny update okay we need to talk about politics i've decided on this show i'm not going to name any uh specific politician because there are people on both sides of the aisle that really frustrated me there is a congressman or a representative from this California. is the transition or are we still on yeah, yeah. look okay well right. no this is this is still related to be honest okay okay it said 
I'm working with my California colleagues to address the Silicon Valley bank crisis. We must ensure that all deposits exceeding the FDIC uh, 250,000 limit are honored. Banking is about confidence. If depositors lose confidence on the safety of their deposits, then we are in trouble. Jason Swag, my boy, quote t- tweets this and says, if you're looking for a perverse incentive for banks to become really reckless, you're on the right track. I just want to hammer Jason's point home there. If you just say in all circumstances, regardless of how reckless the bank is, and I want to emphasize, we're not saying that SVB has been incredibly reckless here. They just had a a confluence of events that's poor and, and it had a few bad decisions in there. That's when you just say, oh, the government ensures everything. No, then there's no skin in the game for the yeah. bank to actually act rationally. So uh, this is, uh, it's funny because we didn't talk about this in the pre-show meeting, but this is where I get frustrated with politicians because they consistently show that they don't understand banking, finance, investing, Yes, right? And you don't, that you need confidence in the banking system. Absolutely. The, the $250,000 limit is there for a reason because for most of your mom and pops, that's going to make them sleep at night. Yep. Corporations and others have more responsibility to think about some of these systematic risk and manage to those things. And banks certainly do. A cor- that's basically the value you add as a bank is giving people peace of mind that their money is safe with you. So yeah. I just wanted yeah. to spotlight Jason's point. One, one, one last point I want to bring up. I'm probably going to state this too strongly, and uh, I'd, like to, I'd love to get your reaction to it. In many ways, Silicon Valley Bank was fine. I say that meaning if you look at the the uh, the detail of what occurred this week, you effectively had a situation, right, where they had um, they put themselves in this situation. So I don't mean like what they did was yeah. like all that stuff was fine. But you had a situation where they were having deposits come out in order to cover those to hit on your other point. They didn't have enough available for sale security, so they would have to sell from their bond portfolio in order to do that. They knew that if they were going to sell from their bond portfolio, the whole portfolio would have to be marked to market. If they did that, the, so they like they would have had the money. Is my point? Like they would have had the money, but if they did that, then they wouldn't have been able to meet their uh, regulatory ratios. So they went, okay, so we can't do that. So what we should do is raise capital. And there was the the happenstance, the bad luck and happenstance. There's also intentional stuff that happened in here. But the bad luck and happenstance that happened on the same day that the whole Silvergate nonsense occurred. And so like yeah. the the faith in the system like that day was not good. But they, they were trying to get like a couple billion dollars. Like it, it wasn't for for a bank of this size like it. Eventually, yeah, was it, it the might 14th largest bank in the U.S.? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it might have caught up to them eventually anyway, right? Because because of all the stuff that you named, which is real. But it was, yeah. To me, it was like the, the I, bank could have just been fine. Um, Well, banking's all about confidence. So yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. seriously, watch It's a Wonderful Life, people. Like the, the guy, the savings and loan, George Bailey has the money. He just has the money tied up in other places and they're good investments. But when people freak out, you yes. only have so much in your vault. So this is how bank runs happen. Bank runs will continue to happen. They, it's really hard to, 
to articulate it, dude. Goes, I mean, I think they were fine, but they were fine until they weren't. And all that took yeah, no. 36 hours, right? And it's so funny because it, it's almost like a the PR team or the investor relations team tripped over themselves a couple times. And then we're at a really fragile place in the financial psyche. It, you're totally right that if they would have grabbed $2 billion in a different way, or if the press release would have had a narrative to it rather than just, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know if you've read the press release, but it's pretty opaque. And I think that caused panic. And then, yeah. but man, four days ago, they were talking about how they're one of the best places to work in America. And the CEO was fielding questions on conference calls about how he distresses and talking about how he loves to ride his road bike in Northern California. Like there was no sign of this. That was Tuesday. Ago. Yeah. And Tuesday. now they don't exist effectively. Yeah. It, it really is wild. Um, and to all the points you're bringing up, like, Bank is about confidence. They they set up their infrastructure such that it wasn't, it was questionable. Like it was very questionable looking from the outside in um, and from the inside out probably as well as questionable. Uh, and so they, their infrastructure wasn't very sturdy. And then, you know, a couple hits of bad luck and a couple bad uh, decisions and executions. And there we are. Uh, it is, it's quite, quite fascinating. We've beaten this one enough, although we could probably talk about this for hours because there's a lot of different like tributaries, but I think we beat well, it up enough. Yeah, today. we'll we'll call it, we'll wrap it, but I really feel like I've only covered, I don't know, 15% of yeah. the material that I read. But let's wrap on a positive note with uh, a continuation of the everything bubble. The WWE, which is World <laughs> Wrestling <laughs> Entertainment, has filed some paperwork with somebody i think they're working with pwc or someone else to try and ensure security of their plots because if you didn't know it's all scripted and they basically it's like a, a tv show right they they tell people exactly what to do and when to do it but they'd like to encourage gambling on the outcomes of their matches so I mean, Dugas, I thought we were kind of done with this. I thought most of the bubbles had popped, but apparently the gambling bumble, bubble is still gaining steam. I've got an idea. Imagine this. It involves what we talked about earlier, body doubling. Imagine people watching you, betting on and watching WWE wrestling. And how you react is what they can bet on or something? No, that you're just... They're just watching. You they're bet. just watching. They're just they're just watching. There was no, no, I want another no layer of betting. Thinking. I want like, uh, is he gonna throw his uh, water bottle or not <laughs> yeah, if he exactly, loses the bet? Exactly. A friend of mine and I. This reminded me of a, of a short story. A friend of mine and I, maybe about ten years ago, something like that. We were out just hanging out uh, at a bar, and we were watching this boxing match, and started. We like we were rooting for different people in the boxing boxing match, and we were like, we're gonna throw down a bet. Yeah. So we throw it on a bet. Uh, boxing match ends, and then we decide to like look up the match because there was something I don't know. There's a question that we had, and realize this match happened like a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there too. There was a we uh, we're at a pub in Europe, and there was a sporting event going on that was like the championship game. 
we were disconnected from it. It had happened the day before, and we got so into this thing, man. Like exact <laughs> yes. same sort of thing. But everyone in the pub was looking at us like we were stupid, and we didn't figure out why until uh, three hours later. Hmm. Google's go. scary that way. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody. Appreciate you. SkippyDougals.com is our one-stop shop. And if you got listener mail, SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.